Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Part two of our conversation on Think Humanities with Dr. William Turner and his uh, book entitled Harlan Renaissance. Uh, Bill, uh, to most of his friends, uh, was the fifth of 10 children born in 1946 in the coal town of Lynch, Kentucky in Harlan County. Uh, many of his family members, including his father and, and grandfather were coal miners uh, working for United States Steel. Um, he, uh, Bill, uh, is really best known uh, in many parts of this country and the world as uh, a researcher uh, of extraordinary uh, interest in uh, African-American communities in uh, Appalachia. And his uh, 2021 book, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in, the, in Appalachian Coal Towns, uh, won last year's Distinguished Weatherford Award for Nonfiction and we're so proud and so pleased to have him as our guest. Uh, if you missed last week's conversation on the podcast, uh, Bill talked about uh, Lynch and uh, his friend Alex Haley and many other things. Please go back and listen to that one. Uh, today, uh, Bill, once again, let me just say welcome to you. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here, Bill. Um, I, I told the people at the end of last week's podcast that we were going to talk about one of the chapters, uh, which is... Uh, is interesting and and so Kentucky, a uh, humorous uh, in in many ways, but it's uh, it's called uh, what's in a name? Why why did you? I mean that that was such a part of the culture, so you felt like it had to go in your book about the culture of uh, where you grew up in Lynch, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that nickname thing. Uh, you probably heard the story of this uh, guy. I'll say he was from my hometown in Harlan County, and. Uh, he was called to the maternity ward when his sister gave birth to twins uh, because the husband wasn't available. He went to be with her. And so when she came out of the room where she had the babies, uh, they had uh, given her brother the gift of naming the children. And she said, uh, Woodrow, what'd you name the kids? And he said, well, I named the, the girl Denise. And she said, oh, that's nice. Uh, what'd you name the boy? I named him the nephew. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that cornball joke is a way uh, that I handled. Uh, and this is very uh, true. You can ask a friend of mine that I'm sure you know, who's been the head of the Urban League in Lexington for 52 years named PG Peoples. I went to the first grade with PG in Lynch, and I graduated from UK with Lynch, with PG, you know, 22 years later. Uh, uh, PG will verify this. And that is, uh, uh, I never knew what PG's, what P stood for or nor what G stood for, because we just always called him PG. But uh, in our hometown, white and black, uh, men, and whatever the gender, uh, you got a nickname. Most people were called something, and the nicknames sometimes were quite literal because uh, we didn't have much creativity. 
so that if a person uh, uh, had a deformity with his hand, uh, his name was Noob. Uh, if uh, a, a man was a, a young boy was a, uh, uh, a courageous, bus face football player, he might be called Tough Titty. Uh, uh, there were, if you talked a lot, if you were just a gabber, people would call you radio. They would give you a nickname based on the shape of your head. Somebody might be named Real Head. Somebody might be named Dog Head. There was, in fact, people lived two doors up from us. Uh, believe it or not, I don't think it would be politically correct nowadays because the man's name was Scrap Iron and his wife's name was Mrs. Monkey. And every, and they had a son called uh, Doghead or something like that. So uh, I was quite surprised when we first integrated at the Lynch White School, I'll call it, because the school we attended had Lynch Colored Public School in the concrete on the third, fourth side. But when they integrated us and we went to the other school, uh, that was the first time I ever heard a teacher call the role in class. They did not do that at our school. No, the teachers never called the roads because our teachers lived on the same street we lived on. They knew us. They taught our mamas. So when somebody said William Turner, when I was in the 12th grade in that first, everybody looked around like, wonder who that is. Uh, everybody <laughs> called me Bilbo. Uh, nobody, yeah. knew who, nobody knew Fluffo's real name, but we knew Fluffo's brother was named Red Dog, right? And nobody knew uh, who Little Toe's last name was, but we knew his big brother's name, Big Toe. You know, so they had Big Toe, Little Toe, and Toe Joe in one family. Why and did so you call your uh, grandson uh, Mule Train? Because there was this man who was my daddy's best fishing buddy, uh, and Mr. Mule Train, uh, whose name was Mr. Coleman Washington. I came to find out when I was a grown man. Uh, you know, it was mule trains or a train of mules, uh, a team of mules that pulled the coal out of the mines early on. So that a mule train was metaphorically one of the strongest things you could put together is four mules. And so Mr. Mule Train was a six foot seven man who was built like John Henry and he was strong, but he had the biggest laugh. And you thought he was Pluto in the Popeye movies, but he was this big, strong, sweetest man in the world. And I want my grandson to be like him. And my grandson is now six feet tall and he's only 13 and a half years old. Uh, and he's taller than me and his daddy. Uh, and so Mule Train was just, it meant so much about the strength and the resilience of this man who would always say to us, hey boy, be in, but don't never break now, you hear? That's the way he taught us. And so uh, my other son, uh, my other grandson, rather, I called him Junebug because there were so many Junebugs in my hometown named, you know, when you're named Bill Goodman Jr., you know, everybody called you Junebug uh, or they were short and sometimes just call you Bug. So there were, there were four Junebugs within a, I, I could throw a rock and hit every Junebug on my street because it was June Freeman, June Hall, June Amos, and June Price. And they were all about the same age, everybody named Junebug. And uh, so, yeah, there were lots of lots of colorful names. And I'm not sure it's, it's in this chapter or not, uh, Bill, but you uh, go to great lengths to, to talk about um, 
usually women's middle names or their, their first name, their given names as May, M-A-M-A-E. Everybody was yeah. uh, 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 something, uh, Doris May Jones, uh, uh, Sally May uh, uh, Smith. I mean, you know, I wish I could find that section right quick. Yeah, because I, I call them honeyed names that the middle one was May. And I think in my book, not I think, I know in my book, uh, in that chapter, what is yeah, the name? Here it is. It's on uh, It's on page 96. Yeah, because in the bill, you know, I tried to put them alphabetically in a way, these women's names. Yeah. So I started with Annie May and I ended with uh, Willie May, A through W, Annie May, Audrey May, Bessie May, Bertie May, Beulah May, Karen May, Dorothy May, Ella May, Eula May, Fannie May, Gertie May, Hattie May, Jessie May, Judy May. <laughs> Katie May, Lula May, Minnie, Maddie May, Nanny May, Rosa May, Sally May, Verda May, Verdi May, and of course, Miss Willie May. And there were a lot of girls <laughs> that Billy Sue, Katie Sue, Lula Bell, Betty Sue, Betty Jean, Mary Lou. And as you know, that kind of rhythmic naming is very typical in the Appalachian South. People had great fun with names. And I, I know you. Uh, in my book, a few pages over is where we got into a thing with my mama uh, because uh, my wife and I gave our children what you might call Africanized names. They were not Africanized. We took them from our interactions and familiarity and travel. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in, uh, in terms of our children have names that are Swahili. Uh, our daughter's name is Keisha. And my middle son, my oldest son, his name is Kenyatta. Uh, and then our youngest son, who's 42 now, his name is Hodari. Hodari means man-child. Uh, Kenyatta means musician. Keisha means girl born on a Tuesday. And my mom went, what in the hell is that? <laughs> what is wrong with you? How dare you? Burdens children, those crazy ass African names. <laughs> so literally, way okay. And I went on to explain how by the time I got twenty or so, I had been immersed in the black power, black is beautiful, back to Africa, African heritage. You know, things people are just beginning to take hold of. And uh, I remember having a roundabout with my mama because uh, I had to remind her she named one of my sisters Marie Antoinette, and I said, "Now, mom, just think about it." You don't know jack about the French Revolution, but you got the nerve to name this child, Marie Antoinette. And oh, my, my, you named my brother, Mark Anthony. What do you know about Julius Caesar? Nothing. Was that Black spelled with a K or a C? What is, what, Mark Anthony? Yeah. yeah, yeah. My, 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 and we have, a, my oldest brother got this, this so mama named him Irving Rudolph because she played a piano and she loved Irving Berlin's compositions. Cold Camp woman could play Irving Berlin like anybody. And the Rudolph came from the love affair many people had in the 20s with Rudolph Valentino, an Italian Superman. Uh, you know, he was like the Tom Cruise of the day, whatever you say. And so I had to remind my mama, how dare you get mad at me because our children have names that come from our African ancestry and yours come from French and Italian and Jewish ancestry. So uh, lots and lots of people in our hometown had nicknames because uh, that was just a, a big part of our culture.
I'm talking with uh, Bill Turner, uh, author of the Harlan Renaissance Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. And Bill is telling us stories of his growing up in in Lynch, Kentucky and uh, uh, and beyond um, in one of the chapters, Bill, uh, titled School Integration. Uh, and this is the uh, quote that I uh, tried to pull out in part one of our conversation last week about an Alabama mule. Um, you say that school integration was worse than a kick in the head by an Alabama mule. Um, and then one reviewer of your book I read uh, also excerpted this. Uh, Bill Turner has a lengthy and detailed history of what school integration did to undermine the community's dependence upon the Lynch Colored School as one pillar of its community. So when, when what you're saying, you, you, and then this reviewer went on to say that, that integration, uh, you're not saying it's, it wasn't a bad idea, that integration was badly done at the expense of black teachers and principals and the larger black community. Uh, extrapolate, expand on that, if you will, please, sir. No problem. I'll give you a direct example that I'm living through right here in Houston. A few years ago, Houston was literally devastated by a storm called Hurricane Harvey, okay? And the Federal Emergency Management Administration, FEMA, sent several billion dollars to Austin, Texas. They sent it to Greg Abbott, our governor here in Texas. Okay, Greg and his friends all got together to distribute the money to the hard hit areas affected by this hurricane. And you know what? In yesterday's Washington Post, to everybody's surprise, an article revealed that 85% of the money went to rural areas of Texas that are primarily white, rather than here in Houston, that is primarily brown and black. And the duplicity, the scorched earth politics that we see that are so racialized in America today, that's why none of it surprises me in the least. Because going back to this era you just mentioned, when they decided after gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands that the dual education system was deleterious to all students involved, and as a result of the Brown decision in 54, we're going to bring these schools together. We're going to bring them together. Well, they did bring them together. Uh, however, the way they brought them together was a kick in the head. And I didn't use head. It was my editor who put head in there because, uh, you know, in the mountains of the South, people were really good at metaphors uh -huh. and similes. Why, buddy, that's like getting kicked in the head by an Alabama mean or you know, uh, 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 I felt like uh, uh, I'm the only black in here. I feel like a fly in some buttermilk, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the kinds of phrasing. So the integration of schools, Bill, people know that when they uh, integrated the schools in the South uh, and the rooms in which the policy decisions were made, uh, the only thing black in those rooms, for the most part, was the tips of the pins that they were writing the policies with. The lead was black. Everybody else in the room was not black. And they made decisions that said, well, buddy, who's going to be the football coach? You got a black man over here and a white man. Well, guess who became the football coach? Oh, we got, we got, we got four chemistry teachers. Two down here at the color school. I'm, I'm kind of talking like that, buddy. You know how we do up there in Harlem County. 
So I could just see these guys in 1961 sitting there, men, there were probably no women in there. And they decided, well, who's going to be the English teacher? And I had English teachers who taught me the poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And they taught me about W.E.B. Du Bois. And we had Black History Month in our school just about every day. Because when you walk into the Lynch Color School, as I point out in my book, the artwork was from the, the giants of, of Black life and culture, Booker T and W.E.B. Du Bois and Marian Anderson and Mahalia Jackson. And all these heroes that some people don't see until every February, we saw them every day. And so all of a sudden, our teachers who had lived nowhere near us, they didn't know us, they didn't appreciate us, they too had been taught along a path that said black people are not as smart as white people in America. That's the way they were raised. So all of a sudden, they're teaching these people. And uh, uh, as I try to say in my book, it ain't what they did, it's how they did it. They eviscerated the blacks. They threw away all of the records where I had gone to school. They threw away all the trophies. You know, they literally eviscerated the community because our only representation of an educated group of people of a middle class was the teachers. Everybody else was a coal miner. And those teachers, their husbands, and they were basically women, 95% of our teachers were women. And in those days, the only thing black women who went to college could do was teach primarily. Maybe there's a few who went into, came out of Kentucky State and went into nursing. But that meant the smartest women who went to college came to be the teachers. Well, nowadays, the smartest women who go to college, the last thing they want to do is teach. <laughs> they become doctors, they become lawyers, they become professional accountants and people in the media, they become journalists. They're not the Mrs. Sweat that I had who taught my mama, who taught in the same school for 45 years. So uh, uh, that's what I meant by uh, change is not always progress. You know, they threw out the baby uh, with the dirty water. And uh, we can see the effects of it because for the last 50 years, all people talk about is educational gaps between blacks and whites. And I bet that's what they do uh, in, in uh, Fayette County, Kentucky because uh, Dunbar High School just changed locations. It doesn't have the same people in it, the same composition of the teaching core as Dunbar had uh, 50 years ago. I'm not saying we have to go backwards, but I'm saying we have to realize the mistakes we made so that even white children are disadvantaged when they don't have any teachers that don't look like them, that don't come from the same experience. That I'm talking uh, with Dr. Bill Turner, um, who is the author of the Harlan Renaissance Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. And Bill and I have talked about uh, his uh, growing up in Lynch. And, and uh, uh, I, we're going to pause here for um, an announcement from our underwriter. But I, I want to come back, Bill, on the other side with uh, we're talking about integration. Uh, we're talking about when you went to uh, the one year of, uh, of high school. Uh, but also you got to know the principal of the white uh, school. Uh, I think you said there were only three uh, uh, African-Americans in your class is that, or in the whole school. Was that what? Oh, when they integrated the school? Yeah. No, our, our, our class in the, the class of 1964, uh, uh, almost 50 years now, I guess, 60 years, I know. Um, yeah. No, when, when they integrated, uh, uh, the, the uh, 
uh, our our high school class uh, was about evenly split between blacks. And okay. Whites. Well, it was when you went to the University of Kentucky, I think, when you found oh, yourself yeah. uh, uh, a fly in the buttermilk, right. uh, hair in the biscuit. Uh, in so the let's. Let's hear from Spalding University, our great underwriter for this uh, series of uh, podcast, uh, Think Humanities podcast. And we'll be back uh, with uh, more from Bill Turner right after this. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Bill, tell me uh, about uh, Jack Isaacs and um, uh, how you, how he befriended you, uh, what, what kind of man he was, uh, and uh, how you got along with him. No problem. Uh, Lonnie Jack Isaacs is his name, or was his name. He passed away a few years ago, 2019, I think. Uh, you know, uh, long before the L word became uh, uh, a damnable label, as in liberal, uh, you could say he was the first white liberal I ever met. The second white liberal I ever met was named John Stevenson. And the third white liberal I ever met was named John Oswald, who was the president of the University of Kentucky in 1966. And, you know, back in that time, you know, the word liberal stood for someone who wanted the same thing for everybody that he wanted for herself or him or herself. Uh, And so Mr. Isaacs was just unusual uh, because he had, graduated from the Lynch High School. He had delivered newspapers and we had a lot in common. And all of a sudden, when he was 27 years old, they integrated the schools and they made him the principal of the, you know, the consolidated Lynch schools. Uh, Of course, the uh, principal of the Lynch Colored School was 20 years his senior, uh, Mr. John Vernon Coleman who lived five doors up from us. Mr. Coleman was the principal and he had a master's degree at the time when they made Mr. Isaacs the principal. And Mr. Isaacs told me to my, he said, they only did it because I was white. And they also asked me to become a member of the Lynch Country Club when I became the principal, but they never thought about asking my daddy because my daddy was a coal miner. And I wouldn't take the invitation because it was just a joke to him. Uh, and he stewarded that in that initial class, and he, he did a very good job, apparently so much so that he was offered to be the principal of Henry Clay High School in Lexington, and he left Lynch the year after that integration, 1965-66. He left and went to uh, Lexington, but because the metro government was consolidating around that time, uh, he ended up being the associate principal. Uh, I, I've gotten to know very well uh, uh, Susan Krauss, his daughter, who was a vice president for many years at the University of Kentucky in charge of finance. Uh, I knew Mr. Isaac's wife uh, in Lynch. Uh, I knew his parents. Uh, my, my grandparents knew his grandparents. 
And so he was a man, just as I was getting to Lexington in 1966, he came to be at Henry Clay. And we hooked up a lot of times. Uh, I, I recount in my book how uh, uh, I got involved in some stuff that was, quote, getting me in trouble, but it's what John Lewis called good trouble. And uh, I gave this speech in 1968 after Dr. King got killed a couple of days later because Mr. Isaacs had kind of talked me through that speech. He came to the speech at Memorial Hall, and I had never been in Memorial Coliseum uh, where UK played back. I had never been in there, but I had had the pleasure of marching around it and picketing it for two years in a row, trying to get Mr. Adolph Rupp to recruit black basketball players. Took a, several tomatoes and eggs up, upside the head for, for uh, as one person, Jack Isaac kind of said to me, Bill, you do understand to pick at Adolph Rupp's games is almost to say there's no Jesus. You're burning the American flag, Bill. Do you really understand yeah. what you're doing? And, and there were a lot of us doing it. My friend Jim Embry uh, knows this very well, still there in Lexington. My friend Theodore Burry, an attorney there in Lexington. We did a lot of things that we know uh, meant as much to uh, progress at the University of Kentucky as the statues that represent the four blacks who came there to play football. Heck, I grew up with Greg Page. Uh, Greg Page was from Middlesbrough. His mom and my mom used to play bingo together every weekend. So, you know, these, these institutions, they go back in the 50s and the 60s, and they remember their athletes. That's fine and well. But some of us have some other kind of battle scars uh, that, uh, uh, that mean a lot to us because uh, uh, we were questioning our sanity when we were 20 and people were looking at us like we were crazy because we were saying, why don't you have any black basketball players, Mr. Ruff? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, you went out here to Texas, and they beat you to death at Texas Southern. Texas West, I'm sorry, yeah, Texas Southern's here in Houston, a black college. But uh, uh, I can remember, God rest his soul, I rode from Lexington to Scottsville, Kentucky, with Joe B. Hall, who was trying to recruit Jim McDaniels. And he took you along? Yeah, I went with Joe. In well, fact, what did you, what did I, 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 I know that I know Jim McDaniel, uh, I know the, the Western, the whole hit yeah, and, yeah. and you went along to, for, for what reason? Uh, Mr. Harry Lancaster, who was the AD, I was the president of the Black Student Union. I went to help recruit Jim McDaniels and Jim McDaniels father sat there and looked at us rather curious and said, where's Ruff at? <laughs> Yeah, if y'all want him so bad, where's the where's the head coach? And Jim McDonald signed at Western the next week. Oh boy, that that's yeah. well, that, that's a story too. Uh, well, oh, yeah, I don't think that's in my book, but I did talk to Joe about that several times because you know uh, I did serve as vice president for diversity at Kentucky for a few years there between two thousand four and two thousand nine, I think it was. Yeah. So, yeah, I talked to Joe Hall about that. Me and him and Tubby Smith sat down one day and talked about that. Well, as we um, conclude our discussion, uh, we could go on and on. I, I don't want to um, leave uh, without telling everyone if they don't know, and so many people do know, of your educational achievements, because I know you're proud of uh, your academic background. Um and the work that you have done uh, across the nation, uh, uh, a sociology degree from the University of Kentucky. You were at Howard University uh, as a foreign affairs uh, scholar. 
you have a sociology degree, uh, an MS from Notre Dame, and then you went on to get your PhD from Notre Dame in sociology and anthropology, and you did postdoctoral work at uh, the University of Pennsylvania and Duke University, uh, quite an academic career, and you've put all that to good work in various ways uh, at uh, the university. You just mentioned your, your position there at uh, Kentucky State. Um, you have been called upon as a lecturer and a scholar um, many, many times over. So um, I'm leaving out um, chapter 16, which uh, where Dr. Uh, Alessandro Portelli uh, calls you brilliant. Uh, that's a whole nother story. We'll just have to tease that. And uh, she was somebody that you admire a great deal and that lived with you in your home uh, in Lynch. Um, that's, a, that's a marvelous anecdote. And she writes, uh, you excerpt from her book about you. But your, your chapter uh, titled, um, and it, that's the chapter that uh, Dr. Portelli is in, Mediating, uh, Meditating on the Future uh, at the Mountaintop. I just want you to conclude by, by meditating a little bit uh, with us on where we are in Kentucky right now, um, where you think we're going to go. You, you make such an interesting comment at the very end of that chapter, Bill, uh, quite fascinating. Maybe the last few sentences about, uh, I believe and hope, and yet another Harlan Renaissance, another recovery, an additional regeneration, an extra special revival will arrive in the once vibrant coal towns of central Appalachia. Mm -hmm. yeah, do you believe that? Yes, I do. Uh, first, in terms of uh, that checkoff list you did with my uh, from slavery kind of thing, uh, uh, Alex Haley had this wonderful comment that I remember all the time. And it says, if you ever see a little frog on top of a six foot fence, somebody picked him up and put him up there. Such is my story. Uh, a little frog that uh, 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 born along Looney Creek. I don't want to get into a kind of romantic Rex Richie story. It's not about that, but John Stevenson, Doris Wilkinson, uh, Larry Tarpey, uh, 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 Robert Miller, John Oswald, I could go on and on, Doc, uh, uh, Jack Isaacs, uh, uh, people who helped me along. Uh, uh, I still have a letter that Father Theodore Hesburgh wrote to General Hershey, uh, who was the head of the Selective Service Board when I got drafted in 1968. Uh, and uh, Father Hesburgh wrote to the, to the head of the draft of the United States military and said, why don't you let this fellow stay in Congress? I don't think, and I, I, I say, wow. And uh, believe it or not, I was drafted, but subsequently, uh, you may notice as I talk so loud here that I couldn't hear well enough to go into the US Army. But you know, I have on my wall up here across to me, my uncle after whom I named uh, William Hobart Turner, my daddy's name was William, my uncle's name was Hobart, who died as a Buffalo soldier uh, in World War II. Uh, and so all of that kind of stuff makes into who I am and even always have hoped to be. So that uh, when I talk about 
you know, where we see this going, uh, I know people might look at that last chapter and say, yeah, right, you're going to have a renaissance. I don't expect, for example, when my brother left working, my oldest brother Irving, Irving worked uh, for United States Steel until it closed down in Lynch in the mid-90s. Uh, however, at the time, Irving was making $100,000 a year with overtime. Lots of coal miners uh, in, in that last breath that it was taking in the mountains, even uh, maybe much more so truck drivers that haul the coal around the mountains make sixty dollars and $75,000 a year. Uh, I don't know if ecotourism and the Benham Schoolhouse Inn or uh, mountain cabins in Wallens Creek. Uh, uh, I don't know if tourism uh, is going to uh, generate that kind of income. But I do know that Appalachia has been mainstream. East Kentucky is in the mainstream now. Just it took six and a half hours for us to get from Lynch to Lexington when I was 20 years old because you had to go by the circuitous snake-like route of US 25E, and now you can get to Corbin and you can be in Lexington in two hours, two and a half hours from this, three at the most. That's progress. What I'm hoping, and I know that even the, all of the United States right now can't find any baby formula. So uh, some of the things that we couldn't find in Harlan County when I was 20, we can't find them anywhere now that I'm 75. So that a lot of America, all of America, has the same existential threats as well as the same opportunities as Appalachia. And I hope that people say, I don't want to move to Cleveland. I don't want to move to Lexington. I don't want to move to Louisville. I don't want to certainly move to crowded Harris County, Texas. Uh, I want to stay here in Letcher County. Uh, and I think that with the uh, globalization of the economies of the world and how uh, uh, sometimes uh, when we finish, I'm going to have a meeting with some people, one of whom is going to be in Johannesburg and another one is in Boston. And we're going to meet from 1030 to 12 o'clock, they say, and they're going to pay me. You know, it's like I can earn a living sitting right here. And I think with the right kind of digital infrastructure in Hazard and in Hyden, and on Pine Mountain and Black Mountain and uh, Lookout Mountain, we can have the same kind of lifestyle uh, as any person with skills can have and live in the beautiful Appalachian region. Uh, I hope that the, the infrastructure, particularly the roadways, uh, the services uh, uh, that uh, I can, uh, if I had an electric truck, I can say I can drive from Lynch and still juice it up. <laughs> so I, I see Appalachia uh, as uh, being in a place, just like the rest of this country right now, things are changing an awful lot, have changed an awful lot. And I just happen to uh, have come away from the mountains uh, knowing that uh, half of life is not what happens to you, but your attitude toward it. And I think a lot of people back home still have a positive attitude about America, about their chances, about their children. And that's what kind of drives my last chapter. It's just, if you meditate on it, as Martin Luther King said, I might not get there with you, but as a people, we will get to the mountaintop. That's what he said the night before he died. 
And so that analogy that we'll get there, uh, I think applies. Uh, and if it doesn't apply in the real world, it certainly applies in the imagination of somebody trying to write. Bill Turner, uh, this has been a marvelous um, discussion with you. And uh, I so appreciate your time. Uh, uh, we're, um, we're so pleased uh, that uh, you took the time to talk to us and write this uh, wonderful book. I'm going to recommend it as must reading for as many people as I can reach out to. And uh, I want to thank you again for uh, being with us uh, and uh, for uh, the work that you've done all of your life uh, in Kentucky and beyond. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.